All right, very cool. We're rolling up. Welcome to the Jungle Brothers podcast. Uh, it's me, Joey Worthington. We've got Tira Ward in the house. Hi. And we've got a good friend of ours, Bridget Mottram. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good, thank you. Um, thanks for joining us. This is your, you haven't been on a podcast before, is that right? I have not. It's very exciting. Are you nervous? Like a little bit, just because I talk very fast. You do. So you're going to need to slow me down a little bit. That's okay. That's okay. okay. Well, yeah, I mean, we're going to get into it and, and you're here to talk. So this is the perfect platform for you to Excellent. to take that A first set. podcast. Mm-hmm. Wow, you seem very natural uh, behind the speaker already. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I do talk a lot, so it might just be a natural Should extension. Yeah. <laughs> Could be, yeah, you might have found a new place to be. <laughs> Um, I've known Bridget for, I don't know, a few years now. We met through training. Um, you're a jiu-jitsu player. Yeah. We met through, uh, you came and did some training here at Jungle Brothers. Uh, you jumped in on my Bulletproof for BJJ program for a while. That was super cool. Um, and then we did a retreat together. Yeah. Came on my retreat in Bali, which was super cool. When we could travel. Oh, you did the retreat? <gasps> did the retreat. Oh, it nice. was amazing. Yeah, it was fucking cool. That it was one. just like six days of happiness. Yeah. And was that De- Derek? No, no, Derek. Derek, Derek um, was at the one before. That was, but all, Josh. Yeah. Josh, Josh. Josh, help. Josh Cordoba, handsome oh, man. Oh, I love him. Saw him <laughs> up at Byron recently. Oh, did you? Yeah, caught up with him. It was great. I think they got rid of their cafe. I think. I think they did too. They had yeah, it when right. we were there. But okay. I think they've really recently sold up. Yeah, right. Is he on. taking yoga up there or uh, Yeah, or he was. I, I think they might have actually started maybe invested in or bought a yoga studio or something like that. I don't know. They fucking got mm. new business every day, those yeah. guys. Yeah, okay. But yeah, he's teaching. Maybe you should get in touch. I'll get in touch, yeah. On the Mullumbimby transition. Oh, yeah. You know T's going up to, uh, going to Mullumbimby to open a Jungle Brothers gym. I am. Yeah. yeah. If everything works out. The <gasps> yeah, way. this is the plan. Expanding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah, the tentacles are starting to- 2.0. Like, there yeah. will be a takeover. Yeah. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> so exciting. Yeah, it is actually. Now, Bridge, you mm. are a, uh, I know you as a super happy-go-lucky, hyper-positive, loud, boisterous, <laughs> bouncing around the room, kind of hugging everyone type of individual. Yeah, COVID's um, loved me. Yeah, you weren't built for COVID. No. Nah. I remember when we got together for a PT session and <laughs> we had our distance. Height of COVID. It was the height of COVID <laughs> and it was like, yeah, we can do a PT, but we can't. We can't be, you know, we've got to keep the distance and we're really respectful of it. And then Tree turned up to the park, <laughs> who Bridget had been on the retreat with, and she was like, yeah. Tree! And she like, she like started the sprint towards him, like to launch herself. <laughs> and I was like, Bridget, no. No. And she was like, oh. And she like, she so reeled nice. it so in. <laughs> so funny. Because <laughs> so I remember when you saw Camilla here at the gym, you like, it was like a guard pull from the other side of the room. You jumped like five meters and landed around him like a teddy bear yeah. to embrace and say hi. Choke him out. Yeah, it was yeah it's my natural hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we've got you in today because mm. you're going to talk to us about domestic violence. I am. Which is uh, you know, kind of very much offset of what I know of your personality because I'm yeah. guessing- Yeah, not so many laughs. Not a boisterous topic. No. Um, but yeah, I work for the Sydney Women's Domestic Violence Court Advocacy Service. I am a safety action meeting coordinator. Um, and we are auspiced by Southwest Sydney Legal Centre, which is um, an incredible legal centre who do heaps of DV services and, and work and advocacy and resources and all that sort of thing. Got great expertise. So sort of surrounded by some really amazing experts okay. in the field. And that's your, that's your full-time gig? That is my full-time job. What does a day at work look like? 
Um, so it's a little bit varied every day. Um, the main crux of our work is that we receive automatic referrals from police as soon as there's been DB contact. So um, it's called Safer Pathways Program. It's a statewide uh, program where the police systems speak to our systems. And as soon as they put an event on, a police event on of a DV nature, um, it comes through, uh, the, the info comes through to us and we call the female victims. Male victims go to another service. Um, so we call them sort of like the day after or the Monday after the incidents happened. We say, hey, we know something's happened. Uh, there may be an AVO or criminal charges. There may not be. Um, how are you doing? What do you need? Do you need legal advice? Do you need housing? Um, do you need counselling? Do you need uh, financial assistance? Like, what do you need? Um, and then we sort of walk them through any processes that they may need and, and send out referrals to where they go. So that's a huge crux of our work. Um, I do the matters that come through as serious threat. So they're graded either as threat or serious threat. Um, and when police send them through a serious threat, they're the ones I call. And they're the ones that we're really concerned about. Um, and then every second Tuesday, we do a safety action meeting, which is pretty much the crux of my job, which is where in the sector we have um, police, uh, fax child protection, fax housing, or DCJ, I should say, housing, um, corrections. Uh, what's that? Oh, sorry. Um, family and community services. However, they're now called Department of Communities and Justice. Okay. They change their name every few years. It gets very confusing. New acronyms. Yeah. And we spoke about this. You've got a lot of um, tech talk. Yes. Which, I mean, we'll pull you up on it. So Please. for the listeners out there, we'll be like getting definitions. <laughs> so we'll just wear it. Um, a whole lot of different health workers, like the hospitals, mental health, some non-government organisations. Um, and we all sort of sit together at one table and talk about these really concerning matters. Um, and a lot can sort of happen from, from the safety action meetings, um, but it's pretty much just making sure that the whole sector is working together to keep women and children safe of these matters that we're really worried about. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, it's sort of just like a lot of... We're the middleman for a lot of different places. Um, our job is, is largely like connecting different sectors. So traditionally, health hasn't spoken with police, hasn't spoken with the criminal justice system. They've all sort of acted in silos. Yep. And women have had to go and, and keep retelling their story everywhere they go. Yep. So the idea of us is that they tell us their story and then we send them to the places that they're telling us they need to go. So we're sort of trying to give them as much autonomy and say in what happens as we can. Um, and then they're not having to go find these services themselves and they're not having to retell their story so much. Right. So the, the people that they're going to see have been brought up to speed. There's yeah. kind of like a case that they're made aware of. Yeah. Um, and we'll often send referrals through where um, we're just like, yep, this is her name and number. This is a bit about her story. She's waiting for your phone call. And then she gets another phone call from a counsellor and they're just like, hey, like Bridget's referred you to us. And then she goes, oh, yeah, I spoke to Bridget. She said that she was going to do that. So right. it's, it doesn't scare them. They're familiar with who's about to call them. And they're just like, yeah, like we're happy to book you in for a counselling session. And then that process starts, whereas that woman's just got so much to deal with that counselling's the last thing on her mind when it's really the first thing she needs. Right. Is a bit of help to, to settle her mind. Yeah. And that, um, that retelling of the story mm. is also a reliving this uh, horrible um, scenario yeah. over and over again, which 
which is what you don't want to do. I'm Absolutely. guessing like, like as an individual, you'd think, okay, I don't want to keep reliving that. Yeah, technical term is re-traumatisation. Re-traumatisation. Mm. Yeah. It's a real thing. It is very much a real thing yeah. and it is very, very damaging. Yeah, so right. you, Wow, okay. Mm. That makes a lot of sense then. Yeah, yeah. So um, we have women sort of say to us quite frequently, like it was really great to not have to tell the counsellor what was going on. Um, like we always get consent to share information, but a lot of the time you sort of think, oh God, I'm telling these really intimate details about this woman to a counsellor, when really she's just like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't have to tell her that because I just didn't want to say it again. Yeah. So it's, it is really helpful to be able to share that information, obviously with the woman's consent. Um, and to be able to refer them, one of the biggest things that we refer to is family law advice, because so often um, kids are involved. And it's so terrifying. The family law court is a terrifying process. Um, Be- and because of the nature of kids and possess- like kids getting yes. taken away from you and that kind of thing? The pre- yeah. professionals involved in the, yeah. in the process. It's sort of the everything. Like, um, you know, we have the, the lawyers are very difficult. Then lawyers in general aren't patient people. But the legal process is a very confusing one. And so women need a lot of guidance through that. Um, And it's a very scary process because you don't know what's happening and what all this massive legal jargon means. Um, But, you know, then it's also like, how much is this lawyer going to cost me? And, you know, they charge hundreds per hour. And, you know, what is this whole process going to look like? How long is it going to take? The family law court itself is a terrifying, intimidating building. Just the whole situation, the idea that, you know, you're talking about some really abusive men and you're just like, his mental health is declining. Um, I don't really want him having the kids without supervision. We end up with situations like Hannah Clark and these are the things that are just constantly... Hannah Clark? Sorry, Hannah Clark. Um, I'm going to say Gold Coast. I should know this off by heart. Oh, uh, yeah. Gold Coast murder where she and the kids were burnt alive in the car with him. Yeah. Um, these are the horror stories that we actively think of daily that we actively try to avoid right and then there was one whose names i cannot remember it's terrible of me um it was out in pennant hills where the father went and shot the two kids um and then you know skipped down the driveway and off he went um and these are the you know they're not they're not overly common things. Like, you know, when you look at how many people go through the family court, um, but they're common enough to terrify women. Yep. They're just like, you know, he's got nothing left to lose. Is he going to kill my children? Like those rare incidences Mm. have an effect on women as a whole. Massively. And then, of course, there's Rosie Batty's son who was killed by her partner. Yeah. She thought she was doing the right thing. She didn't want to be seen as that vindictive bitch by the family court. She let him see his son and then in broad daylight in the middle of the park, he killed him with a cricket bat. That was horrific. Fucking horrible. Yeah. Absolutely horrible, right? Um, But then you go to family court and when women have withheld children, the lawyers are just like, you're just this vindictive bitch. You just don't want him having his kids. Why are you so horrible? That's the angle they play. That's the angle they play. And this is what women are trying to avoid when they allow visitation with these men and then when they kill the children everyone's just like well why did you let him have them yeah like they're just stuck in this horrific bind um and then of course there's you know there's the way that we talk about these men in the media which is he was a good dad 
And he's like, bro, he just killed his yeah. kids. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's not a good dad. Yeah, apparently she was provoking him. <laughs> yeah, we, right? Is, yeah, I think the Telegraph likes that angle. So when They love that angle. When yeah. we're talking, because um, it's obviously, this is, a, this is the this men, men and women thing. Mm. Um, it is, it is a thing. It, mm. Like a lot of people talk, well, you know, females are, can be abusive as well in relationships, yeah. but let's talk statistics because we, yeah. we need to lay it down right here. Absolutely. There's a huge uh, um, shift of difference between mm. the two. So have you got s- statistics on? I do. We do love some brain. stats in DV. Um, so it is uh, a very gendered thing. Um, so just some really sort of simple stats. One in six women and one in 16 men have experienced physical or sexual violence from a current or previous partner since the time they were 15. One in four women and one in six men have experienced emotional abuse and one in five women and one in 20 men have been sexually assaulted by a current or previous partner. And then we have one woman killed every nine days by a partner and one man killed every 29 days by a partner. In Australia. In Australia. Yep. So these are all Australian stats. These are all ABS, uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics stats. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, But what is really important to keep in mind is that men are the primary perpetrators of violence with 94% of both male and female victims reporting a male perpetrator. So it's not to say that women are never never violent, women don't do these things, but they statistically do not do them at even close to the levels that men do. And there's also... um, was that 94% of cases mm. is a male perpetrator? Correct. Right. Yeah. So Huge. Yeah, massive. Yeah. So men are absolutely victims. They're, they're more victimised than women of like pub assaults and all this sort of thing. You know, if we just look at assaults in general, men are probably more victimised. But it's almost always a male perpetrator. Like you go to a pub, you have a pub brawl. It's between it's two men. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um. And then we also have what cri- what types of assaults uh, are done by men and women. So the type of violence perpetrated is really different. So choking, damaging property, strikes resulting in split lips, fractured teeth, bones, blackouts, and threatening to hit a partner are largely committed by men and l- rarely by women, whereas cutting, scratching the face are more committed by women. But they're like wildly different things, right? Yeah. Like a scratch on your face compared to a broken bone. Yeah. But when Smash we sort teeth. of look, yeah. one, one's, one's potentially going to kill you or do permanent damage and yeah. the other's not. Absolutely. Um, but when we sort of, when you have, you know, a deep laceration or, you know, a broken bone that heals or whatever, it's the same offence, criminal offence, as um, a scratch to the face. Mm. So if we just sort of go into assault offences for a second, you've got three main categories. You've got common assault, which is where you are assaulted, but you're not um, harmed. So like if I push you, it's a common assault. Um, If I'm even just like up in your personal space, that can be a common assault. Right. Um, If you're scratched and it leaves a mark, anything that kind of leaves a mark is ABH, so assault occasioning actual bodily harm. And then anything that generally the the threshold is um, permanent damage. So anything that leaves permanent damage is um, GBH, so grievous bodily harm. Right. So ABH is this massive bit in between that encompasses anything from a scratch that leaves a mark to any assault that you can heal from that doesn't leave permanent damage. Which could be a broken bone. That's Which insane. Which could be a broken bone. Yeah, it's right. Fractured skull, something yeah. like that. 
Fractured skull? Fractured skull's probably going to leave Previous damage. Probably, huh? Yeah, it'd probably right. end up being GBH. But then sometimes police will charge with ABH because the threshold is lower and they're more likely to get a conviction than GBH where he's more likely to get off. Like he better to get something, right? Yeah. Um, so even when we look at stats of, of that particular offence, they're still skewed. Yeah. Because you're looking at wildly, wildly different health burdens. This hugely broad category. Massively broad. And when we look at the health burden for women, um, it is the disease burden of DV is the risk, there is no other risk factor that is bigger for women uh, between 18 and 44, including sm- smoking, high cholesterol and drug use together have less of a health burden for women 18 to 44 than DV. Wow. Gosh, that's scary. That's it's scary combined. for me because um, mm-hmm. I, I have a daughter. Yeah. You know what I mean? And sister and mum and all these women in my life. And to think that um, that the, the, the biggest threat to their health is, is another male, yeah. it scares me, but it also angers me a lot. Mm. Um, it angers me because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a male and it, and it angers me that there's men out there mm. that, that, that represent me, my, my sex, yeah. that are they're a, a threat to people that are closest to me. Um, where are they most at at um, at risk? Is it at in home. the pub? At, at home. home. Okay, that that that's, yep. that kind of tops it. I mean, that's that's a, that's a horrible scenario mm. to think that the, your own home is the, the least safest place for you as a woman mm. between those age between that age gap. Yeah, and, and it's and here in Australia, it's not we're not talking like mm-hmm. developing country or country with very strict uh, religious mm. um, connections or anything like that. This is. This our is houses, our streets. Yes. Yeah. It's like next door. Just to, just to de- define, when you say the health burden, is, mm. that what the, is that what the government spends, like has to spend on that sector of healthcare? Like theoretically, obviously we don't see that happen in actuality. Yeah. Um, otherwise the DV sector would be absolutely flooded with funding, which we are not. Yeah. Um, it's, it's more of a, a, like a statistical term in terms of like this is – where we are seeing a burden of health. Like this is where we're seeing injuries. Right. And, you know, people going to hospital, people dying. Like yeah. these are the causes. And when we put all those causes together and, and create statistics, that's the health burden. Fucking hell. So it, it's almost like it's its own little pandemic, really. Absolutely. So why isn't it talked about more? I mean, these, these, yeah. these stats are mm. something that we should all really be talking about. Um, what, what, what's happening in this space? It is so complex and it's because it happens it does happen in the home and these are a lot of the matters that we see in court his word against hers um and there's a lot of ways that you can get different injuries you know and there's a lot of different versions of that particular event that you could sort of manufacture and so when you have like just one version against the other and, you know, he, she's saying I, you know, he, he hit me and he's saying like she was drunk and she fell over and she thought it was me. It wasn't. She hit her face. She, she was just so blackout drunk. And, you know, we're talking about DV victims. They're generally not perfect little women. They're, you know, quite often have, you know, coping mechanisms like alcohol, but know when they've been socked in the face. Um, how does a magistrate uh, find w- where the truth is? 
you know, and then again, we're looking at a woman who's traumatised. She does not present well in court compared to a man who's very in control of his life, very in control of her and presents very well in court. So it is so difficult for a criminal justice system when there is no other proof um, to, to find what happened. Um, and it's the fact that it is ongoing, it's really insidious and it's, it's a built effect so when you're at a, in a pub, you've got CCT footage, CCTV footage, everyone's drunk, you get socked in the face, you know, you don't, ha- you don't ever think, oh, that was my fault, right? If some bloke comes up to you and hits you in the face, you're never going to think, oh, like, that was probably my fault, hey. We hear that daily. From the women. From the women, yeah. yeah. Because oh, wow. they, they it's, it's called coercive control. Um, and it's sort of all of these different behaviours that are built up often over years before anybody gets hit um, where it's sort of like a, a pattern of minimising. See what you made me do. Yeah, That'll Jess Hill's book. Yes. Yeah, um, and it's exactly what it is, see what you made me do. Mm. Um, and they believe that. a classic line, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's incredibly difficult and it's not, you know, we had the one punch stuff, right? Three deaths in a year, we shut down. Shut down all of Sydney. Shut down. And it worked, partially because we, you know, removed people, which helps. Um, <laughs> but we made them stay home. Yeah. <laughs> Problematic in itself. Right? Yeah. Um, and that actually did see an increase in DV, by the way. Wow. Oh, really? That was, yeah. the, was that the original, was that the lockout thing? Yeah, when yeah, lockout like laws. it was 10 p.m. it's closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. City's um, done kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. But it's really easy, right? Was in response to the one punch? I fucking can't yep. go back. Yeah, that was right. in response to the one punch right. laws and it was three murders in a year, which statistically wasn't any higher than the last 12 years. So th- it wasn't, right, it it wasn't, wasn't endemic. No, it's just that it was in the media and it was something that was really easy to solve because when you remove people and alcohol, even if you just remove alcohol, but if you remove people and alcohol, you've solved the problem. Yeah. And it is a really easily solvable problem. Yeah. DV's not, it's really difficult and complex and even those within the sector and advocates um, are trying sort of different things all the time to to make things work and it's it is just really really difficult so we had the we had the lockdowns we also had COVID Mm, mm. what kind and uh, and you're on the end of these these calls so I'm guessing you have a fair idea of um, the trends that are happening mm. in this space. What kind of effect did COVID have on, on dom- domestic violence? Yeah, massive. So we've sort of got two separate sets of stats, both of which theoretically correct. So police generally saw stable or even lower rates of domestic violence reported, but a lot of frontline services saw massive, massive increases. And that is almost purely because women weren't able to report. Ah, okay. Or were too scared because they're stuck at uh, they've got yep. they can't go, they can't leave. Fuck. So mm. they sometimes they can't even make a phone call without him knowing, right? Like how big's your apartment kind of thing. You know, yeah. you can hear everything happening in it. But then the other thing is that when women you know, take any action or leave or report, everything else is sorted. They have the house sorted, the kids sorted, the school, the work, everything. During COVID, none of that was sorted. We had people losing their jobs left, right and centre. We had people losing their homes. Kids are at home screaming the house down, doing homeschooling, like oh, all yeah. of those pressures. Extra pressure. Yeah. So A, that led to an increase in DV, but B, it also meant that women 
it, it was just silly to report to it for a lot of them because they're just like, I'm just going to create tension. Yeah, I'm there's other shit I stress. have to take care of. Yeah, and when they've been living in this, they actually know, and this is something that I don't know that they get enough credit for, they know their partner better than anybody and yep. they know how to keep themselves safe a lot of the time. So particularly in my role, it's not my job to tell her what she should be doing. Yeah. Because she, like I can give suggestions, I can say, look, these services are out there. Here is, here's some info and I can refer you to them if you want me to but you still know him best and you still know your situation best and, you know, you have to make these decisions for yourself because you know how, how that's going to pan out. Um, and most of the time when I sort of talk to women, they're just like, oh, he's going to do this and it's exactly what they do because they know them so well. Um, so a lot of the time they're just like, I know he'll just blow up. I just got to – these are the things that I know I've got to do to appease him and so that's what – I've just got to wait out the lockdown. I've just got to wait out COVID. Um, and yeah, so we saw some really big increases with um, like counselling services, DV counselling services, and they had massive demand because women were just like, I just need you to help me get through and then I'll be good. But just like, just help me get through, but I don't want to report. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, there's sort of different stats, but it generally looks like there was, there was an increase in uh, at least demand for support services. Um, and then of course we had you know, the, the more victimised populations and, and vulnerable populations like um, women on temporary spousal visas, which that became oh, yes. a massive problem. Yeah, so Red Cross, I'm pretty sure, um, were amazing. They got some really great funding and they did uh, a program which is still ongoing for women on temporary spousal visas. But again, it's a one-off payment. Um, That's when you, you're from overseas, mm. you're living here. And your your like your visa is underneath your partner's more yeah, or less. Yeah, pretty much. Like a lot of the women that we deal with, he's an Australian citizen. She's here on a temporary spousal visa. So you're brought to Australia. Um, there's a lot of different types of temporary spousal visas. It's very very complicated. Not my area of expertise, but we have some great um, legal services that we refer to. Um, but there's the main gist of it is that they're here um, sort of connected to his citizenship. Yeah. And if they break up, she gets sent back home. Yeah. So often that's used as another form of abuse. Um, so sort of like, I'll cancel your visa. Yeah. Which they technically can't do, but they can withdraw support for, for it. Um, but that's a really powerful thing. That's like ownership in a sense. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, and then they are not entitled to nearly anything under the government. Centrelink, you know, different refuges can't take them because they don't have funding for it. Wow. They, they are, yeah, left out pretty high and dry. Um, so you, we, we've got, um, we've got this, this increase that happened over COVID. Um, you're on the front line with this. What, what are the, the – you're talking about the nature of domestic violence. What, what are, how does it all come about and what does it look like? Yeah, so there's, there's sort of two things that work, that coincide together. Um, the first one is the cycle of violence, which um, is sort of how DV looks in the way that it's not all bad all the time. So, you know, we sort of, we start with this um, build-up phase where, you know, there's tensions coming and, you know, we know something's kind of building 
And then we've got the standover phase, which is a really dangerous phase where like you're waiting for him to explode at any point in time. And then we have the explosion, which is, you know, where the violence, the peak of the violence in the relationship happens. Um, and then we have the remorse and pursuit phases. So I'm really, really sorry. It'll never happen again. Chocolates and flowers. I love you. Please come back to me. You know, you're the only one who can fix me. You're the only one who can help me. Um, and we have the honeymoon phase. So that's where the relationship is really good. And we hear a lot from women. I know that this is happening, but when it's good, it's great. It's amazing. He's the best man I've ever known. And that's that honeymoon phase. Um, that sense of the, well, the bar is so low, mm. and the sense of relief is so high. I'm guessing anything other than getting yeah. abused is going to feel good. Yeah, exactly. You, you know, feel that, that contrast too, though, don't it's we? Contrast mm. yeah. to go from such, something so horrible to something so beautiful. Yeah, it really makes you want to crave the the beautiful thing. Yeah, and you're just like, this is this is so amazing. Um, you know, it's like, it's like when you do anything, like when you're under a huge amount of stress and it's relieved. You, f- you feel so euphoric. Um, and most people are just sort of going about their day and there's nothing different about it, but you feel amazing. It's the same kind of thing. And then we start that cycle again and we start the build-up. Um, and it's a really easy cycle to get stuck in. Um, and a lot of the reasons that we get stuck in it is because it does, it's not all physical. And I think that's probably the biggest thing, biggest misconception about DV is that it's physical. And, you know, we hear a lot... Well, if he hits you, you just leave, like as soon as he hits you. But quite often the first hit doesn't come until years into the abuse. Right. But there's still been abuse for, for those years. Yeah. In, in the form of... Work. Numerous different types of things. So the main um, model used to explain this is called the Dulleth model um, or the power and control wheel. Um, and it's a wheel that has power and control in the middle And the reason for that is because everything that an abuser does is to maintain, create or maintain power and control. And then around the spokes of the wheel that we have is the use of intimidation, use of emotional abuse, isolation, minimising, denying and blaming, use of children, use of male privilege, use of uh, economic abuse and coercion and threats. The economic abuse is Mm. an interesting one because I I, I didn't actually recognise it until I saw a big fold out in the... Uh, Sydney Morning Herald during COVID, mm. uh, it was like a centre page and it was something to do, I, I can't remember the exact words, but it was saying, if you don't control any income in your family, there's a chance you're being financially abused. And I was like, whoa, that's, um, that was a real, really hard hitting yeah. ad and I thought it was amazing um, because I didn't even think about uh, um, that as a tool and now mm. when I, I think about it, it's actually a, a hugely powerful tool to have so, over someone. So effective. And like, you know, it's, it can be really difficult to um, identify because a lot of relationships, there's one person who's really shit with money. Yeah. And like, if you give them money, they will go and spend it on, you know, God knows what. So the other party's just like, I would like us not to go bankrupt, dear. Yeah. Um, and has control of all the money. But the difference comes when um, you don't have access to any money, when the, your wage is going into his account when you have to ask and beg for any money to do anything. To feed the kids. Yeah. It's also a good way to track somebody because you can see where they've been and well, what we're doing in this shop and you're mm-hmm. reading the, 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 you know, the bank account. Um, yeah, like the your, transactions. Your transaction details and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that's sort of you know, technology generally, but particularly that sort of thing has made 
uh, has added another element of abuse um, to to this whole thing. Um, and it, it means that they that is sort of the biggest thing that we see why women can't leave. They just don't have access to money. Mm. They don't have any funds. And, you know, that age-old um, sort of story of her hiding away little bits of money here and there is really quite it's accurate. Plan for her escape in a way. Yeah, because um, it's sort of the only way that, that she can get those funds up because she doesn't have access to any other money. Um, and, you know, all of these things work in conjunction together. So when you have, like, economic abuse and the use of children, you know, you're just like, I have no money and, you know, he's going to take my kids away. And then you've got, you know, minimising, denying and blaming. So, you know, oh, it wasn't that bad. Just get over it or, you you're know. this up. Yeah. You know, if you weren't such a naggy bitch, I wouldn't have to hit you. Like, you know, we hear this sort of thing quite frequently. Um, and then it, when, you're, when you hear that, you know, over time, over and over again, you start really to start it. to believe it. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like it's the same way that, people are, you know, told to raise their kids through positive reinforcement rather than constant beratement. It's the exact same theory. What about, um, let's say, because obviously these guys are out there, mm. you know, um, I, I guess it's, we, we're, it's always good to look for preventatives. Mm. Um, are there signs that I could teach my daughter to look for in an individual that, that could get them... Uh, a bit more of an early warning mm. signal where they can go, okay, he's, he's ticking some boxes here. Yeah. Red flag, I'm, I'm, I'm getting out. Uh, before it gets to the stage where they're trapped in this, yeah. in this cycle. Is there, any, is there any resource or is there, maybe there's something that you could put forward? An amazing resource that was actually built by Legal Aid is called Charmed and Dangerous. And if you Google it, oh, it's, it's the first thing to come name. up. Cool name. Great name because it's exactly what they are. They're so freaking charming. Yeah. Um, and it, it has sort of all of these um, psychoeducation stuff about DV in there. Um, but that's sort of the other thing is it is really difficult to pick these warning signs. Some of them are quite obvious. Um, like, you know, if he wants to know, you know, it can often start very early in the relationship. If he wants to know where you are all the time and who you're talking to, that's a little bit of a concern. Like, why is he wanting to control your actions so much? Um, one of the biggest issues is that Hollywood really likes to romanticise a lot of the red flags that we see. So, you know, instead of saying he's a little bit controlling, particularly for this early on, it's like, oh, he just Madly he's in love really with into you. He's fallen head over heels, love at first sight. He hasn't. Like he's... He wants to control you. He obsessive. wants to control you. Yeah. Uh, on that, you mm. know, and, and say with, um, like, because with the stats, it's like, okay, there's, there's, this is happening on a huge scale. So mm. these, these people are out there, but I'm thinking like, it's not, I, I, can, I can only imagine that with numbers that big, it's not like they're different people, different men mm. to T and I. It's just, it's just men. Yeah. And, it, and, it, it's, and I'm guessing for, for a lot of the, the men who would be perpetrators, there are characteristics like personality traits and mm. whatever. But I'm, I'm guessing also that there's plenty of seemingly good people through who through the pressures of life and mm. adulthood and that kind of thing get turned into this, like cracks are exposed and then they become mm. that kind of, can you talk on that? Yeah. So um, Michael Johnson actually separates those two types of people into um, it's intimate terrorism and situational couple violence. 
So intimate terrorism and intimate terrorists are these kind of men's, kinds of men that we're talking about um, where they actively attempt to build and maintain power and control. Um, and then we have situational couple violence where we have men that could probably really benefit from a men's behaviour change program, aggression, um, you know, alcohol and drug, mental health sort of assistance where we have a build-up of um, financial stress, uh, you know, work pressure, kids pressure, whatever, they then, you know, they want someone to blame. They don't know how to deal with their emotions. They don't know how to emotionally regulate. They turn to alcohol. They turn to drugs. It's suddenly all her fault because she just seems like a really great person to blame. So, like, there's there's sort of two very different types of of violent offenders. That's not to say that situational couple violence isn't as dangerous because women have been killed through right. situational couple violence, right? It can be just as dangerous. Um, but it's not quite so insidious. Um, and that's where services like men's behavioural change programs, alcohol and drug programs, mental health assistance, you know, um, encouraging him to go and seek professional help to deal with the way that he addresses conflict how he deals with his aggression and, and his emotional regulation can be that turning point. You know, it's, you know, woe for me to say that once there's been any kind of violence in a relationship, it can't work because we know many women who have gone back to, to th their abuser, for use of a better word, and they've made it work. He's gotten help, you know, they've been able to continuously work at, at what this looks like, um, without her being blamed and that's sort of like a really important point to to make clear is that it's never her fault but she can support him through his recovery and they can have a violence-free relationship it is possible um it is less possible when we're talking about intimate terrorists because they're, they're usually like narcissists kind of born like that right yeah. yeah and can they be can those be people be rehabilitated or or is it, you know, I don't know if that's the right word, but... Yeah. Um, look, personally, I don't have a huge amount of faith in that. When you're looking at someone whose core values are to control someone else, um, you're going to struggle to penetrate those core values. Yeah. When you have someone who's who craves that power, it, it's sort of something that I don't know how you shift that um, men's behavioural change programs is not terribly my area of expertise. Um, I sort of deal with the other other side. I know they are desperately trying, but I also know that it can take two or three shots of men participating in these programs before they really are able to start changing their behaviours. Um, but when we're looking at intimate terrorists, I'm very sceptical. Yeah, right. So... Well, uh, we're talking about um, these preventatives with mm. with the women, like how to how to look for yeah. these telltale signs. But we also need to focus on on the perspetrators. Mm. Um, I'm, the, I mean, these statistics are high, but I'm mm. guessing that we've got the same male reoffending over and over. It's not like every like one in every three males is mm. is, a, is is um you know beating up beating up women. Mm. Um, but how do we because there's also this cycle you're talking about. So a lot of these males, would you say, could have been um, brought up in a household yeah. with a similar kind of environment with dads instilled the core values of mm. treating 
uh, his mother like like crap and then you grow up and you think okay well that's just how it's kind of done yeah do, um, how do we what, what what do we what do, how do we intervene with that like how do we how do we get to these kids before they become these perpetrators school education um unfortunately that's a generation two generations three generations that we then sort of have to go through um and you know you're at school and then you go home to the same thing it's sort of hard to to then say that the school education's right but we certainly in schools need more focused more upfront uh education about what healthy relationships look like like you know you get the sex ed with you know this is how sex works don't get pregnant kind of thing but we do not do enough on what does a healthy relationship look like yeah that makes a lot of sense um and potentially um uh, educating parents mm. as well to know what to look for yeah absolutely and i think you know, social media and technology has made that really hard um, because, you know, kids can sit in their room for hours on end on their phone and you've got no idea what they're doing. Sitting on Reddit and yeah. talks crap like that. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's sort of like this really difficult, uh, you know, primary prevention, secondary prevention, tertiary prevention kind of model um, where we've we've got to get in early to make sure that we try and, at least decrease these numbers that we're seeing over time. Um, but, yeah, and, you know, encouraging parents to know the signs to look for, you know, it's – I think the biggest sign is, is he constantly there? Is he constantly wanting to know where she is? Um, you know, when they get a little bit older, you know, it's not like your job as a parent stops at 18. You know, if your daughter's getting in a new relationship – it's going really fast, really quick. And then all of a sudden he's just like, oh, give up your place, just move into mine. And it's been like three months. Um, these are sort of the, these really fast moving relationships. This love bombing. Um, is love bombing? Love bombing. So it's sort of just like this massive amount of love that you're bombed with. Yeah. And it feels amazing. There's so many endorphins. It's so euphoric. Um, and it's a really great tactic, particularly – when abusers identify girls who have been neglected or abused as children. And we see that a lot with our clients is they're just like, you know, this started when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, it's normal for yeah. me. And, you know, they're very good. Abusers are very good at identifying that vulnerability. Abusers, in, when you're talking about them in that sort of realm, mm. are they doing this – is this a conscious thing that they're doing, that they're going out looking for victims? Or is it, is it just a case of it's their – that's their behaviours are sort of like in that sort of cycle. Mm. It's it's a little bit difficult for me to say because I don't have anything to do with them generally. Um, For us, it definitely feels like it's a a purposeful thing. Um, But then at the same time, you look at their history and and like T said, you know, they've got, you know, child abuse behind them. Um, So... It, it feels very purposeful and you – like I th- I feel like they at least know damn well that they're controlling someone. At least intuitively. All, yeah. yeah. Whether it's all conscious or not. Yeah. Um, and that's where we end up seeing these serial abusers and where we end up seeing serial victims. So quite often we'll sort of have a woman come through and – she's just like yep no I'm all good now he's gone and then like six months later she'll come through with a new bloke and she's just like I just don't know how I keep picking these men um and that's where Charmed and Dangerous is actually really great it sort of breaks a lot of that down but it's partially because 
they're very good at picking you. Right. And partially because, you you know, you get this love bombing and you're just like, yes, like someone's, you know, someone's treating me right. Um, but it's sort of, it's like this over, uh, over amount, it's not grammatically correct, of, <laughs> um, of love and... I get you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like way over the top. Yeah. It's almost indicative of something. Yeah, like what are you hiding, bro? Yeah. Yeah. Like speaking about emotions, mm. um, you... You, I'm guessing you have to. Your job is to sit there and listen to these stories mm. get it told day in and day out. Mm. And I mean, I know for me in a role like that, uh, I would probably be in tears every day. Yeah. I don't think I could. I, I could. I could emotionally attach myself from the role. Mm. How do you? How do you deal with the the um, these stories that are coming through and regulate your own mm. emotions and stay? I mean, do you do you detach yourself from these stories or do you? Are you constantly in this state of empathy? Like, do, do you have a system that you kind of um, use to keep yourself yeah. in a good headspace? It's so, it's different for everyone. It's um, for me. I like. I think everybody gets a little bit desensitized, um, which sounds terrible. But like you said, it's kind of the only way that we can do our job. Um, and you know, when I see something on the news, often my mother will gasp and go, "Oh, that's horrible," and I'm just like, "Oh." That's what's pretty terrible case you know you you do get quite removed from it um but it is you really have to actively self-care um you've got to do the things that you know make you feel good um jujitsu is one of the biggest things for me massive endorphin release fit and you know makes keeps me fit and healthy and when you're on the mat and you're about to be choked out or have your shoulder you know broken uh you can't think of anything else so it, it helps you detach. So that's a big self-care thing for me. Um, but you need to take your leave. You need to identify when you're burning out. You, um, quite often your colleagues identify when you're burning out. They're just like, mm, bro, you might need to take some time off. Like you, you're really just starting to not, not be the best social worker you could be. Um, and, you know, you just need to be able to debrief a lot, which is where COVID has actually been quite difficult for us because quite often you'll have this really difficult call and you're just like, oh, God, that was a lot. And you'll spin around in your chair and debrief with someone in the office. Now there's no one there to there's no one let there. Us steam to. I don't even have a cat. Do you get counselling at all? Um, we do have access to EAP, uh, which is Employee Assistance Program. Um, and I will often check in with um, a really great therapist that I have, um, more like a, you know, how we go to the dentist every six months or 12 months to get a, to clean and make sure we don't have cavities and all that sort of thing. I think it's really important, particularly for, for social workers and anyone in that mental health field, to get those mental health checkups and, and just check in and make sure that you're doing good. Do you ever find... Do you ever find yourself starting to develop um, like resentment towards males being yeah. in your big? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, quite often, um, like I have a wonderful, wonderful partner, but when I was dating, it was really difficult um, because it was sort of like if, if a guy that I was seeing sort of said one thing wrong, I'm just like, nah, 
jump on it. Red flag. (laughs) Yeah, right? Um, I know you. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen you before. Um, And that was was something that, you know, it was really important to have my non-social worker friends because I tell my social worker friends, they're just like, nah, we'll see him next week in court. (laughs) 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 Um, And sort of like run that past them because, you know, where you're talking about the red flags – Firstly, you've got little red flags and big, big red flags, and I think that's quite important to differentiate, which is something that I probably didn't learn until recently. Um, well, tell us about the – tell us what they are. So, like, it can be difficult with little red flags because they can often look like normal dating things. So, um, you know, if he's, like, a little bit cocky and a little bit cheeky – is he being a little bit cocky and a little bit cheeky or is he like chauvinistic and a bit of a prick and, you know, he's quite narcissistic? So they're sort of little red flags. Um, bigger red flags are sort of like when he's wanting to know where you are at all times, where he starts getting jealous really quickly of other guys, even if it's just in a joking fashion, sort of just like, oh, you're hanging out with him again. And he's like, like, Bro, I've been seeing you for like three weeks and I've known this guy for years and we're really great mates. Can you just back off? That's a little bit of a bigger red flag. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously you have the really big red flags where you see that, you know, massive amount of control where, you know, things get quite physical quite quickly where he starts to get really jealous and controlling. Um, and it's, it's easier to identify. When they're the little red flags, when it's just like, oh, like, you know, you're, you're, you're texting me every morning and that's really lovely. And you're just like, hey, what are you doing today? And that's really, really nice. Um, but is that going to progress to you text me every morning and then every hour after that and you want to know who I'm with and, and what I'm doing? So where is that going to go? Yeah. Is sort of what the little red flags look like. Like it could be, fun, like it could be really lovely and normal or it could be um, signs of, of someone who's really controlling. And I think the little red flags are good ones to just keep on the shelf and just keep an eye on. And you don't have to have a massive reaction to them. Definitely communicate about them and say, mm, what's this all about? Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to cut things off straight away, but they're definitely worth keeping on the shelf. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's a really good point, isn't it, that you can't, you have to take those into account. But mm. the, the tricky part is, is that some of those actions or behaviours are really nice. Yeah. And could be an indication that he's really super into you and yeah. super caring or could be an indication that, yeah, but you, you don't know until you've given it more time. Yeah. Um, and my partner is, is super caring and amazing. Um, and it was in those early stages, it was my best friend who's not in social work who I was running things by and she's like, dude, that's totally normal. Calm down. Yeah, right. Like, and I'll tell my social worker friends and they're just like, nah. <laughs> they all love him now, it's fine. Um, but yeah, it was my best friend who sort of just brought that level of perspective because obviously we do have a really warped perspective sometimes and it can That's be hard good. to exit that. Yeah, right. We do. We know that we see the worst of the worst kind of men, but when you see them all day, every day, it can be really hard to regulate Not think that. that they're, they're everywhere. Yeah, um, what what about what about us as adults? Mm. Um, and we what what if are there signs that we can pick up maybe with colleagues or friends mm. or family members 
um, that may that we could be overlooking. Mm-hmm. And then once we once if we do see those signs and they're you know it's quite blatant, what kind of steps can we take? Because mm-hmm. obviously, just ignoring it. Yeah. Is probably, I'm guessing, one of the worst things you can do. Yeah. You're, ex- you're accepting it as something that's, that should be, that, that does, that's allowable yeah. or, or to- are tolerable. What, what can we do as, as individuals if we see some form of, uh, or signs of domestic violence of people that are close to us? Mm. Well, this podcast is one thing that's absolutely amazing is men having these conversations. So that's incredible. Um, Why is it so hard Mm. for men to talk about this subject? Because it seems like an uncomfortable topic Mm. for a lot of men. I've had this conversation with men before and Mm. usually it gets a little bit, oh, I don't want to talk about this. Yeah. The the, the body language you get, no one actually says it. Crossed arms. It's kind of the same response as talking about racism, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not racist. Yeah, but it's kind of like I find there's a real thing where it's like, ah, that's – yeah, or feminism, mm. right? Talking about that, where it's just like, nah, like you just people just shut off to it. Yeah, and it's like, I, I don't know. There's a, there's a whingy mm. kind of female thing that got, that really irritates a lot of guys, and I feel like it's a, almost like a, people don't guys like a lot of guys don't want to look that deep. Yeah, and challenge beliefs and sort of patterns. Yeah, and like I think first and foremost, it's that it's this hail back to sort of 1970s second wave radical feminism that's like all men. And no one has said all men in like the last 30 years. Um, So it's this idea that if we talk about this, it's like you're accusing me of being, I'm not a violent man, I'm a good man. Um, And it's it's really threatening. And it's sort of like when you talk about men in general, because we know this is a gendered thing, um, it's like, well, I'm a man. And so you're saying that I would do that? Yeah. And it'd be, it's, it's your ego, right? Yeah. And so, like, I would never do that. Um, and that makes it really difficult to have those conversations because you sort of have to try and remove yourself and, and leave your ego at the door um, to, to be able to have those conversations because it feels personal. Um, in regards to sort of what you do when you sort of see something, it's having those conversations. And, you know, when you hear someone make a sexist joke, it's, it's, it's not funny. It's not cool. You know, and it's not just not laughing at it. It's just like, bro, that's not funny. You know, and it's making that, that remark. Showing that the culture, it's, that it's yeah. unacceptable. Yeah, yeah, because that's where it sort of starts, right? Is this, you know, it starts with jokes and then it, it moves into this belief that that men do get to have a bit of control and and get to sort of choose women and do what they like with women and and it progresses from there but if we sort of look back at the beginning where they're getting that acceptance and they're getting the laughs and they're getting the camaraderie around these sexist um, attitudes that's that's the starting point and, you know, I think we've sort of – most people have moved past jokes about, oh, just whack a one. I think yep. we have really moved quite far as society in terms of jokes about physical violence against women really aren't funny yep. and are not accepted anymore. Um, I may be in an echo chamber, not sure. No, I, think I don't you're feel right. like it comes up much. I remember just like being in primary school. Yeah. And, 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 but racist jokes, mm. sexist jokes were just, yeah. they were just the thing Normal. that everyone told. And most of them I didn't even understand, but they, they were the ones that were 
kind of rotating at the time, yeah. I guess, because people hear the parents say it and mm. then they talk, say it at, at school. But I don't, I don't hear it as much anymore, if anything. Yeah. At all. Which, you know, I suppose it was easier to identify. It's sort of what's made DV harder is that, um, that, that like, that's More. really easy, right? Someone's yeah. got a bruise. Um, but particularly now when we have, like, technological abuse, that's made things wildly different and so difficult. So even just the jokes about just like, oh, yeah, I've got her on my find my phone. I'd like, you know, I'll know when she's here. You know, just yeah. those sorts of comments and they may not even sound abusive, but you're sort of just like, oh, God, you, like you track her everywhere you, she goes. I, I wanted to ask that and I mm. might have um, – yeah, um, feel free to cut me off if I've diverted from another question because no. we've thrown a lot at you. But, in, yeah, like we have – this is something that I, I've noticed – with this discussion and with the racism discussion is that within our culture and within our time, there are things that we say and things that we kind of um, subconsciously believe that are sexist or racist without mm. knowing them. Right. And then mm. when someone brings it to the forefront is like, well, actually when you make a joke about punching your wife and giving her a black eye, it's actually a sexist thing. And you're like, fuck yeah, it is. Like I ne just never thought about it. Yeah. Right. And you're like, thanks for alerting me to that. What are the, you know, what are things like you've touched on a bit already, but what mm. are things that we do or say that kind of, that contribute to this mm. culture? I think it's sort of, a lot of it's really difficult to identify and it's sort of like, um, you know, this, this idea, it, it comes back to sort of normal gendered ideas of, of sex and dating, sort of like how men have women on a rotation, you know, those kinds of comments like, oh, yeah, I saw this chick and then I went and did a booty call with this chick and then I went and slept at this chick's house. You know, it's sort of indicative of a lack of respect around women. Um, and the way that men can often talk about um, sexual acts with women quite publicly without consent. You know, oh, I did this to her, I did that to her. And, you know, you're just like, does she know that you're sharing that? Yeah. So that they can be more difficult to identify because it's not necessarily with um, a malicious intent, but it is still that undercurrent of misogyny and of lack of respect of women when we start to discuss women that way, particularly when men discuss them, you know, in the locker room, um, you know, this locker room talk, quote unquote, it's that it doesn't stay in the locker room. It filters into your psyche and it filters into your subconscious and it's just like, oh, we can treat women like that. And, you know, I can go and manipulate this woman and tell her that I'm not seeing anybody else and I'm really hot on her to get in her pants and then I end up going to another woman's house the next night. You know, it's, it's those misogynistic behaviours and attitudes that then develop into a culture where women become property or become disposable and then that's, you know, where we sort of see violence moving from, um, which is sort of really an interesting paradigm in the way that we're sort of looking at men being able to have multiple women and, and choose multiple women, but then also having ownership over them. Sort of, it's a really uh, interesting juxtaposition. But that's sort of, I think, where that lack of respect of women lies is where we then see violence stemming from. Because you don't, you don't sort of hit someone you respect unless like you're in a cage, you know, MMA match kind of thing. But, yeah. you know, it, you know, you get, again, you get, you get hit in a bar, it's because that guy doesn't respect you and it's just like, oh, look what I can do to you. Yeah. You know, you don't hit someone you respect. 
Um, and so I think it really stems from that lack of respect of women and it just sort of branches off in a number of areas, but it, it leads to, to violence against women. Um, you're speaking of echo chambers. Mm. Um, what kind of – have you seen any, um, any changes since social media has become such a powerful kind of tool and also these chat, chat lines and mm. – um, I'm guessing that uh, it's, it's, it's been a good thing to, to connect people yeah. that, are, that are going through issues, but possibly also to connect perpetrators or mm. this, uh, people that, that feel a certain way about women. Um, the, the, these core values we were talking about um, and getting these, that, that kind of individual into, a, into, a, uh, in a, into an echo chamber could potentially mm. be very, very dangerous as well. Yeah. Do you see any of that, um, that kind of stuff popping up? Yeah. your cases at all? Or? And I think, you know, we have a really scary far right wing in Australia, um, which I think a lot of people think is a lot weaker than it is. Um, and we have things like Reddit, 4chan, um, men's rights activists, uh, and it's this really scary echo chamber. Um, and, tro- and trolling is a big part of that as mm, well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, particularly with like, even just like Facebook and Instagram algorithms, it just like, you know, it keeps showing you more of what you want to see. And then you think that everybody's, everybody's reality is that and everybody is with you and agrees with you. Um, and that can be sort of really dangerous in the way that you genuinely feel like you have a right to be doing these things and that you're supported in these things. Um, and potentially you can find the support. Mm. So a woman could be in a position where... They, they can be getting abuse mm. from, from a number of males instead of just the one now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we see um, things like on, on Reddit groups, it's like, oh, download this app and, you know, on your, on your missus phone and it looks like, you know, it's just a, looks like a flashlight app. Um, but really it, it's a mirroring app and it mirrors her whole phone to yours. So oh, you know shit. who she's texting. Oh, it's terrifying. Absolutely Jesus. terrifying, dude. Um, on that if women ever think that they do have anything on their phone, if they have an Apple phone, they can go straight to the Mac shop and they will look at you. It doesn't matter if it's under warranty, anything. They have a policy that um, if someone comes in and says that they think their phone's been tracked or hacked, they'll look at it. So that's also a really interesting tip point. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fuck, I don't even consider like... Oh, so common, dude. bananas. Yeah, so, so common. Um, So, yeah, you've got these sort of groups that are just like sharing abuse tactics and you know apps and and different ways of doing things and manipulation tactics and it is really terrifying um unfortunately i think it's actually more prevalent than help that women are able to sort of seek online um except for sort of finding in-person services i think covid's probably changed a little bit of that in terms of there's a lot more online but um you know, women are needing in-person help, whereas men can get tactics online. So I, th- I think technology in general has really um, supported abusive men more than it has victimised women. Wow. Yeah. And is that when you said earlier, technological abuse? Is that mm, what you called it? Yeah. Technological is that what you're talking about, that kind of stuff? Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and it's like, if you think about your phone and how much of your life's on your phone, mm. Um, and what you do on your phone, you do your banking, you do your, your business emails, you do your phone calls, you do your text messages, everything is on your phone. Yeah. And if someone had access to that, they know your whole life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes we have women who 
are just like, he knew what I said to my lawyer. And you're just like, was it over the phone? She's like, yeah. And he's like, go to the Mac store. Wow. Um, and those are, those are really scary things because when women are – and this is something that happened in the Simon Gatani case. I think it was 2014, I'm going to say. There's a man who threw his partner off a balcony yeah. and killed her. He had a mirroring app on her phone and she was doing all the things. She was sending text messages to people and she's like, I'm going to store a bag of clothes at your house and I'm going to store some money at your house. She was doing all the things and he knew he was like five steps in front of her all the time oh, and she couldn't horrible. figure it out. It's because he had a mirroring app on a phone. Jesus. And, and that Gosh, was- Gosh, that's scary. That's yeah. That's so scary. And that was when she was, that was when she was leaving is, and when he lost control that, that he then killed her. Um, but he knew, he knew she was planning and he was three steps ahead of her every time. She kind of had no chance. Tell me about this, um, this merger of family court and mm. general court potential that's coming up. I mean, from the outside looking in, it seems like a very precarious move from the government and, and almost a little bit scary. It, am I over-exaggerating by thinking along those lines? Or? Yeah, look, I don't know the in-depth details enough of what the proposed merger is. Um, I do know that currently they are really separate. So the for 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 a good reason, yeah. For good reasons. So the criminal court is a state court. The family court is a federal court. Um, they are, you, you know, if you're at one, you're often at the other. Um, but they are two separate courts. I know there's a lot of arguments for and against any kind of merger. Um, it does mean that women tell their story multiple times. There are different burdens of proof. There's different ways that stories are told and need to be told in each court. Um, and then we have really practical problems with them being separate, um, like uh, police cannot enforce family court orders. So, for example, this happens a lot. Um, he keep They've got family court orders, interim or final, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, they, he has the kids until 6 p.m. Sunday. Um, he doesn't return them. She calls police. She's just like, he hasn't returned my kids. They can do a welfare check, so they can go out and make sure that the kid's okay. But if the kid's there going, oh, yeah, I'm fine, I'm watching telly, they cannot take that child back to mum. Doesn't matter that that's what the family court orders say. Doesn't matter that she's worried out of her brain. That kid's fine. They don't have any jurisdiction over family court orders. Um, and that may, it, it just gets sort of registered as a breach and goes back to the family court and it's sort of like, well, he breached them. Um, and it's, you know, but that Sunday night, she doesn't get the kids back. It's just like recorded as another breach. Um, so that's really problematic. Who can enforce those? No one. Right. There's no police There's no enforcement for that. No. Right. Um, it literally just goes back to the court as a breach and um, it, you know, it, if there's interim orders, it may factor into the hearing when a final order comes about and, you know, all that sort of thing. But we're talking about a years-long process. We're not talking about that Sunday night. Yeah. Um, and then the family court is also endlessly abusive to women. Um, it is a very misogynistic and patriarchal structure. Um, we have very strict gender roles that we see play out in family court. Um, like I was saying before, you know, we see women who are just like, I'm really concerned about um, him having contact with my children because I really think that his mental health is declining. I'm really worried about him. 
but then they don't want to be seen as this vindictive woman in the family court. So either way they play it, they're going to get blamed in family court. We don't see that happen with men in family court. It's not the same rhetoric. We don't see this, this rhetoric about good mothers, bad mothers in the same way with good fathers, bad fathers. Seems very old-fashioned, doesn't it? I'm it guessing does. things take a long time to change. Yeah. It, mm. Do you have any, um, any course of action no. if you believe that the, the magistrate is not, not giving the case what you think it needs? Fit. Right. Um, Word is final. Yeah, magistrates are pretty untouchable, which is really frustrating. Um, You don't have cases recorded in local court like you do in district and Supreme Court. So there's a lot less, um, like, recording of them, like publicly accessible recording. Um, But there's, there's actually just no... There is a body that you can sort of send a particular case to and you're just like, I don't think this was dealt with properly. Um, it's not a process I've ever done and it's a process that you need to be really careful about. Um, I can't remember who the body is, um, but it's injustice and it's, I just don't, it's not something that is ever really done because it needs to be, you know, a magistrate has a huge um, uh, scale, um, what's it called? spectrum that they can work on for sentencing and they can sort of be anywhere in that spectrum. But we can sort of say, like, based on the normal sentencing, this was way too harsh or lenient, Um, but they're still working in that spectrum. And as long as they're working in that spectrum, they're pretty untouchable. Right. But it's a a big spectrum. Would that that knowledge um, and potentially women who have been sort of scarred by in that process – I'm guessing that would prohibit them from going down the the court or you know at least mm. or even just going to the police. Yeah, and um, that's sort of a really scary thing that we often see um, is that women will will come to court and then they'll say, "I'm never doing that again," and I'm never reporting again. Um, and we see it a lot with Indigenous women, um, which you know, if we sort of go back to stats, are uh, where is it thirty? 35 to 80 times more likely to experience domestic violence than white women. Um, so when we're looking at regional wow. areas, we're looking at like 80% time, you know, 80 oh times gosh. more, more likely. Um, and then they're 32 times more likely to be hospitalised by assaults than white women. Um, so they are overwhelmingly um, more victimised than anybody else. But then we also have like colonial histories, mistrust of police, mistrust and misunderstanding of criminal justice systems, um, you know, a lot of them might have DCJ involved in kids, you know, kids being taken away. You know, their grandma was was as part of the stolen generation and, you know, then we've got this generational trauma. Like, there's so much going on for them. And then, you know, they finally go, okay, I'm going to do it your way. I'm going to report to police. I'm going to go to court. And then he gets, like, a community corrections order, which is like a good behaviour bond. And, like, no conviction. So it doesn't even come up on a record. And she's like, well, what did I do that and for? And you've been put through the ringer. She's been put through the ringer. She's, she's like been on the stand. She gets pressure back from her mob. That's another thing that we see with Indigenous women. They're just like, you know, I've got all this pressure coming from, from my mob. And that's just, like, another, another pressure yeah. on these women. And, and that man is potentially still in their life. Yep. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and nothing's really happened to him. And um, he's probably angry. He's, yeah. He's been dragged through it too. Yeah, and then he can often have support of other people in that kinship group who are just like, she shouldn't have gone to police. Yeah. Because, it, you know, there's still a lot of mistrust there. Um, on the other hand, it can work out really well for women. Um, you know, I've got a few clients at the moment who are continuously reporting breaches of AVOs that they've gotten through court and it's really working for them in the way that they're just like, I have an order that says he can't come within 100 metres of my house and he can't contact me. And then, you know, she's seen his car sitting out the front and then he's tried to call her and she's reported those breaches and police have gone and arrested him, he's been charged and that's worked really well for her because it scared him. He can't have a criminal history, he'll lose his job, you know, all of these sorts of things. That's when it can be really, really effective. Yeah. Um, and an AVO is essentially, it is a piece of paper. It is only as effective as um, women respect. make them. Right. Yeah. And as, as he respects them. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so, you know, if quite often we have women who are just like, oh, I've got the AVO and he's breached it, but like, I, I don't know if I should report it. And it's just like, you know, if you don't report it, he doesn't get in trouble for it. You know, you've got to make use of that AVO, which can be really difficult, you know, particularly when he's the father of your kids, he's the primary breadwinner. If he loses his job, you also lose the money for your kids. So that, that can be really, really difficult, but it does really work for a lot of women in the way that they're just like, it's just meant that he's left me alone. And, you know, he's gone off and found something else to occupy his time, but I feel safer. Do you see a lot of um, re-offenders? Yeah. Like I'm guessing if one man does it to one woman, mm. you get rid of that guy, he's just going to go off mm. and do it to another. Yeah. So what, what's in place to stop like this, this, this reoffending mm. kind of circle is. It, do, do they do they get like a warning, or do you get locked up, or do you have to yeah. actually commit something yeah. really nasty mm. to to get punished enough to put you off doing it over and over again? Mm. Um. So, in terms of uh, serial perpetrators, yes, we have a lot of them quite often we'll see sort of new women's names pop up and you're just like, oh, I haven't seen you before. And then you go into the referral and you look at the offender. I'm just like, but I've seen you. Oh, wow. Um, and you're just like, yeah, like, you know, I've seen you across three or four of my victims kind of thing. Um, with those men, there is not much you can offer them unless they're willing to get help. So most men's behavioural change programs are voluntary and you can drop out at any time and, and all this sort of thing to get court ordered programs and all that sort of thing is really quite rare. There is a court program called um, Reinvest, which is like, you know, to do with, with men's behavioural change, that you can elect to do voluntarily if you're up against certain charges. I think you also have to have a criminal history. Um, and the, your court matter will be adjourned until reinvest come back with um like a, a report about how you're doing and it's looking at this this psychosocial education about your behavior um and then that can lead to a lesser sentence for an assault for example but we have an incredibly reactive criminal justice system somebody has to do something before we can do something and that's really frustrating um but when we look at it the other way we can't, you know, we, we start looking at things that are quite dystopian. 
So how do we charge someone for something they haven't done? How do we punish someone for something they haven't done? Yeah. You know, how do we... Kind of goes against the, the legal sort of yeah. perspective a bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when we start traipsing into that, where does that stop? You know, and the other thing that we need to think about and we think about frequently is anything that we put in place for men can also backfire on female victims and quite frequently does because our criminal justice system is terrible at identifying primary perpetrators and primary victims. So quite often we see a woman lashing back because like you think about it, you're in this abusive relationship, you don't just sit there. Like quite often- Sooner or later you're going to fight back. Yeah. Um, And you know, quite often we see these women with drug and alcohol problems, with mental health problems, and then they've, you know, they've slapped back or, you know, whatever's happened. And then they end up a defendant in the criminal justice system. And that's where a lot of our advocacy with police stems from is because we're just like, I get that she scratched him, but he strangled her last week. So can we kind of talk about what this looks like? Um, and you yeah, know, it's still, still considered the, the, same, the same offence. Yeah. Uh, those two are two different crimes. We do right. have strangulation offences, which were recently changed maybe like a year ago or so. Um, and they were, they're being used a lot more, which is great um, because when a woman is strangled, she's then six times more likely to be killed by her partner. Um, so strangulation is kind of a, a gateway offence to murder. After being, she's more than six times more likely to be killed. Yeah, right. yeah. So if a woman comes to us and reports being strangled, she's at a much higher risk That's of... That's a big red, big wow. red flag. A big red flag. Yeah. They're the big ones. Um, and how could something like that only be recognised a year ago? It seems yeah, like things like, are moving, like in, mm. in, the, in, the, in, the, in the court of law, mm. things moving, are moving very slowly. Glacial pace. Um, it was an offence before that, but it was just almost unprovable. Like it's like you had to prove that she blacked out. How do you prove that you oh blacked gosh. out? You blacked out. Like, and she's like, you know, she's got to testify that she blacked out. But, you know, we see it in jiu-jitsu all the time. You know, people are out for 30 seconds and they jump up and they don't even realise they've been out. Yeah you know, when, when they've been chucked out on the mat. So how does she then say, oh, yeah, yeah, I was out for 15 seconds. Like, what, are you recording it? Yeah. You got, no a, you got a stopwatch? She has no idea. So that was all, that was amended um, so that the, the strangulation offence didn't have to have her blacking out. Um, but, yeah, it was pretty rarely able to be proven before that. But, yeah, I think it was only about a year ago that that was changed. Um, and we've known for a very long time that that is sort of like a gateway offence to murder. It's really, really concerning. Um, but, yeah, so we, we sort of see women who are like, oh, yeah, I've been strangled six times, but I scratched him and now I'm a defendant in, a, in an ABH uh, criminal charge. And, you know, he's got an AVO protecting him, which then means that he uses that AVO. And he's just like, well, if, I don't t- if you don't, you know, do this, then I'm going to report you for, you know, not complying with your AVO. And then that gives him more power. It's a really terrifying cycle. Oh, that's an uphill battle, that one. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Bridget, what, um, you've mentioned a couple of, couple of resources already, Charmed mm. and Dangerous is one. What, uh, where can people go? What can they do? Yeah. You know, whether obviously if they're experiencing, but even if they're seeing something, because I mean, we've, you know, I've seen things with friends in the past and you're like, something's going on there. Mm. And it's always that thing like, no, no, it's okay. I just yeah. happens sometimes or, 
you know, I had too many drinks or he gets like that or whatever mm. it is. What can, where can people go? Yeah, so we, um, there's a lot of help out there and there are a lot of people waiting to help, which is amazing. Um, the first port of call can often be DV line um, and they are 24-7 and they can even just get you kick-started on where you go and what you can do. Um, so their number, did you want numbers? No, nah, just no, I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Awesome. Um, you've for, you know, just someone to talk to and, and quite often you just need someone to talk to, to talk through it and then sort of come to the idea that, no, this actually isn't right. And then you can move forward to trying to do something about it. So Lifeline and Rape and DV services are really great for that as well. Um, and then my organisation, WDVC has, um, we are statewide um, and we have um, a number that you can call and, and directs you to your local WDVC has. Um, and that's where we, like, we can really start to do the practical stuff and like, what do you need? Let me help you do that. And even if it is just, I need someone to talk to, we can help with that too. Um, but if it's like, I need help with housing, I need help with child you know, care, I need this, that and the other, you know, we can refer to local services that do that. Um, there's like safe beds for pets with RSPCA, mm. which is another reason that a lot of women don't leave, particularly if they like don't have kids. It's like they're, they're kids, they're fur baby. Um, and you can't take them into most refuges or, you know, apartments or whatever. So they stay for their pet. So there's those kinds of programs. And then there's um, family law advice is probably the next biggest one. So you've got the legal aid domestic violence unit and then you've got your local community legal centre. Um, and then you can always, always, always call your local police domestic violence liaison officers. So within each police local area command, you have um, a domestic violence team mm. and their job is DV, day in, day out. They get it. Um, it's all they do. They go to court every single week. They, uh, th they come to our safety action meetings. They are there every day. Wow. Um, and they are always happy to, to have a chat and um, a lot of women are just like, mm, like I want help with this but I don't want to tell you everything because I don't want him charged. And I think it is really important for women to know that when they do report something to police, it, it is quite often then out of their hands. Right. The um, police can then go ahead and... Police prosecute. can charge and put an AVO on there and, and don't need her consent whatsoever, um, which can be really handy in the way that if she, like, if they then get pressure to, you know, I need you to drop the charge, it's a very American term, um, she can say, I can't. Police put the charges on you. I, you know, police put the AVO out. I can't drop it. And then that relieves the pressure from them. So it can be really beneficial for them. But for women who are just like, I actually really don't want him charged. I think it's really beneficial for them to be aware that police can do that without, um, without their consent. Um, but, you know, when you have a chat to the DVLOs, they can sort of make you aware of sort of all this sort of thing and what that all looks like and what your alternatives might be. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I think that's a real big one, isn't it? That like being able to talk to someone, get in touch, but then mm. also knowing that it's not going to result in action being taken necessarily. Yeah. And that's where I think the WDV CASAs have um, a really great sort of thumb in each pie is that because we're situated within the court system, um, 
and with police, we have a lot of that information um, and we're able to really tell you what it's going to look like and what the next two weeks to a year with these court proceedings might look like, but then also do that social aspect as well, which is what I really love about my job is I get to do the whole thing um, and I get to sort of really give – and it, like it's that fear of the unknown, right? Like it's awful. So give women sort of a little bit of an understanding of what things might look like from here on out. Yeah, well, I hope that um, I hope that what we went through today just got some people thinking about mm. you know that because I, I know for me there was I learned a bunch of stuff over the last ninety minutes and I think there's a lot of parts like what you've highlighted is that there's a lot of parts to domestic violence that mm. we wouldn't consider as as precursors or components of it. Yeah, and when you sort of when you bring them up you're like oh shit yeah okay those those things kind of are and those things are prevalent yeah very. so it's kind of important and and timely to, to get folks thinking about that stuff and talking about them yeah conversation yeah. like getting this conversation out on the table getting po- politicians to talk about mm. it, the police to talk about it you know yeah and, and, and feeling comfortable about about having those conversations in in your workplace yeah and your family in, like in your in your own home mm. you know yeah, and it's it's really difficult to have those conversations sometimes, but it's what perpetuates DV is that it stays hidden. Um, and politicians hate talking about it because it's so difficult. You know, as I said, one punch, so easy. Yeah. DV, so hard. Yeah. Um, so it, it is sort of like if we can make it normal to talk about DV, then it it might carry some less shame for women to talk about. Um, they may feel like they can come forward without feeling like a failure. Um, and we, you know, we might sort of start getting somewhere. I hope. Well, yeah. thanks for being on the front line. Yeah, Bridget. I'm, Thank um, you. I f- it makes me feel good knowing that there's a, a nice, strong, empowered woman looking after our girls out there. It's great. Thank you, T. Yeah, thank you very much for talking about it. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's cool. Pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Do you have um? Do you have anything you want to plug? Do you have anywhere? Do you want people to contact you? Are you looking for Instagram yeah, followers because like, we got gazillions. Yeah, like you know, um, my oh god, I don't even know my Insta. <laughs> um, I, I will let you know what my Insta is. Um, but yeah, like if um, just if anybody's needing any kind of help, really happy to to help out. I think it's it's my full name maybe. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. Um, We'll put a link to it in the show notes anyhow. Yeah. Um, But yeah, no, it's just um, if if anyone's just needing a little bit of a a direction, always happy to help. It is your full name. It is. Bridget Mottram. That's M-O-T-T-R-A-M. It's very technology (laughs) safe of me, isn't it? Um, And just honestly, just our legal centre, Southwest Sydney Legal Centre. They are incredible i was saying to to you joe is that a lot of um like you know we have to sort of get approval to do all this sort of things and um a lot of ceos wouldn't be stoked with their staff just going and uh randomly talking on a podcast at some gym um yeah some rando gym um but our ceo is amazing in that respect um and all of our lawyers are very um very knowledgeable and great TV services, great expertise. Um, and it can be really great talking to um, a lawyer. Again, you know, police often don't have a lot of control over what they can do. They have to take action. But a lawyer can give you 
sort of a little bit of an un- illegal understanding about what it looks like. Um, and, you know, there's local community legal centres everywhere. So it's definitely a resource that I think is pretty underutilised. And ours is, is pretty amazing. That's cool. Well, thank you again for coming on. Thank you. We appreciate your work. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, and f- well, you know, found it informative. Um, if, you, if you did find it informative for you and helpful and you think that you know someone who might also benefit from listening to it, please share it with them. Send them a link to the episode or, you know, post it on Instagram or whatever. But helps to support our show, but also helps to get this message out there and get people having these conversations, which really is the most important thing about this. Um, thanks, you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, listeners. We'll see you guys next time. Peace.